Great to see you all today. Today we're going to look at the beginning of Revelation chapter 3. Up until now, we have largely been in Revelation chapter 2, where we have looked with some depth at the first four letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Those first four letters give us an indication as to what it is that Jesus wants to address in his churches. And as we've looked at those churches, so we have been able to apply the things that Jesus observes in those churches to our own church, to our own house church, and to our own lives. Well, I'm sure that the same is going to be true today. But it's interesting that today's passage deals with the first of those last three churches in chapter three, and it's the church of Sardis. Many of us this week will have been awakened to the realities of how frail and how vulnerable life is, and how particularly that's true in the northern suburbs of Dayton and in those communities that gather around the northern borders of our city. And we see those under-resourced communities, those often struggling families, struggling still further. And that, that awakening that's come to us is something of what it is that the Lord wants to speak to us about today. So let's look at Revelation chapter three, and we're going to read from verse one. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here is a church in a well-known historical city, a city that has declined somewhat from the great heights that it once knew, but nevertheless a significant city within the region. But this city has a particular history. It has a particular way of being. And that particular way of being would have been known to everyone that Jesus addresses here in this letter to the church in Sardis. Everyone in that city would know what Jesus was talking about when he said, wake up or I'll come to you like a thief in the night. 
The year is 549 BC. Sardis is at the height of its powers. It is the preeminent city-state within the region. Not only is it the preeminent city, but within the confines of this impregnable city known throughout the world as a city that has no weakness, has no insecurity, but has an indomitable spirit and an impregnable presence. This city is the city of the richest man that the world has ever known. So fabled is the riches of this man that even today in the, in the old statement, as riches creases, we have the bolderization of this man's name. King Croesus sat on the throne and stood astride the Lydian Empire. So wealthy was Croesus that he had to find a way of dealing with the enormous amount of gold and silver that he tried to hold within the city. There just simply wasn't enough room in all of the storehouses and in all of the strong rooms of the city. It had already become the bank of the world. But what Croesus decided to do was to distribute the gold and silver with his name and face on each of the medallions. And so currency and coinage was invented. And it was invented out of the surplus of this man's wealth. So wealthy that out of his personal wealth, he provided for the building of the largest building the world had ever seen. The building known as the Temple of Diana in Ephesus. That temple was one of the seven wonders of the world and Croesus paid for it himself. This was an incredible wealth, a wealth far beyond those wealthy folks that we hear about in the news and in social media. Just at the same time, as Croesus was at the height of his powers and the impregnable city of Tarsus seemed to be in an unassailable position. A young man who was just a young soldier began to gain ascendancy amongst his people, the Medes. The Medes and the Persians began to identify him as a leader of note, a leader of significance. And so Cyrus rose through the ranks of that emerging empire. Eventually, he killed his paternal grandfather and took the throne of the Persian empire. But he wanted the whole world. He wanted Babylon. He wanted the entirety of the known world to be under his control. But to do that, he needed to fund his campaigns. And there was one place that he had to go to find the money. So he and the Persian Empire 
rolled east towards the Lydian Empire. And there they met in battle and fought to a stalemate. No one was the victor, no one was the loser. King Croesus assumed that as winter was coming, the Persians would retire to their homes, refit, reassess, resource themselves, and then attack again in the spring. And so Croesus and his army disbanded, went to their homes, and Croesus went to his impregnable stronghold in the city of Sardis. But instead of going home, Cyrus decided to follow him. And so on that fateful day, King Croesus looked out from his battlements across the Hermas Valley at the gathered multitude of the mighty Persian army, but was absolutely content because he knew that he was in the impregnable city, the place that no one had ever been able to assault or assail. The vertical cliffs on which the city was built were mounted by equally vertical walls. And inside that city was the treasure house, the storerooms filled with the riches of the Lydian Empire. And Cyrus didn't want to go home until he got them. He sent out a reconnaissance force and they, they looked at the city and came back with the news that he expected. He said, he said so, so what's, uh, what's, what's the news? The reconnaissance captain said that it was impossible to take the city. The city was on vertical cliffs, had vertical walls. There was no way in the southern isthmus of land on which the gate was found was so well guarded that all of the army would dash itself to pieces in an, any attempt to take the city from that position. But there was one flaw, and it was simply this, a crack in the cliff face. Modern day climbers would call it a chimney. Cyrus decided he'd take the chance. And so for the first time in history, a small group of special forces troops was gathered. They were fit, athletic, strong, and aggressive. Armed with light armament, a couple of knives, in which they pushed into the rock so that they could form handholds for themselves, the climbers climbed in the dead of night up the crack, up this chimney. They mounted the walls and found all of the guards asleep. The city was slumbering and the city died in its sleep. King Croesus was taken in chains and was made a vassal king of the mighty Persian Empire and the fabled wealth of the city was placed into the hands of Cyrus who became the deliverer of Israel known to the Bible and particularly the book of Isaiah as the 
man gifted and anointed by God to send the people home from exile to their land in Israel. Nobody remembers King Croesus. When Jesus spoke those words to the church in Tarsus, of course they knew their history. And when he said, wake up, or I'll come to you like a thief, he was saying, there's something about the spirit of your city. There's something about the security of your city that leads to self-reliance the self-reliance that leads to success, the self-reliance, the success that leads to self-centeredness that causes you to sleep. Of course, 300 years later, 218 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, the new tyrant in the Middle East, came to look for money to fund his campaign, Sardis had recovered. Of course, Croesus was long gone. The people of the city of Sardis had forgotten their history, but Antiochus had not forgotten. He used the same chimney to send similar troops. And guess what? When those troops assailed the city, the city was asleep. There was something about the spirit of this city that had pervaded the church and they needed to wake up. Now revival is known by different words, different expressions, different terms around the world and throughout history. Usually revival's called revival. It's a reviving of God's people by the Spirit of God, by the mercy of God, by the grace of God. Sometimes it's called a visitation. Sometimes it's called renewal. Sometimes it's called restoration. But in America, uniquely throughout all of Christian history, revival is called awakening. The first great awakening at the end of the 18th century were, were the stirrings in the heart of the people that eventually led to freedom and independence from a foreign power that should not be named. <laughs> the second great awakening saw the emergence of great movements amongst African-American people here in the early part of the 19th century. The third great awakening took the church from the 19th century into the 20th century. In America, revival is called awakening. It's as though there's something about us that leads us to sleep. There's something about the security, our self-reliance and our success that causes us to sleep. 
December the 7th, 1941. Mitsuo Fuchida is the commander of a small group of Japanese bombers flying across the mid-Pacific. He sees the sunrise, and as he sees the sunrise, he feels that it augurs well, because here, the symbol of Japanese imperial might is telling him that the words of Admiral Yamamoto will be found to be correct. The great architect of the attack on Pearl Harbor said this, we will catch the tiger and her cubs asleep. And so as Mitsuo Fuchida arrives at that spot in the mid-Pacific, in the Hawaiian Islands, he calls out in Japanese, tiger, 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 Torah, 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 and the attack begins. Three battleships, three cruisers, many other ships capsized, scuttled, hundreds of planes, more than 3,000 personnel obliterated. By the providence of God, the three aircraft carriers were out on an unexpected, unheralded maneuver. And so the miracle of Midway only six months later was made possible. But Admiral Nagumo, who for some reason did not authorize the second wave of attack, to this day nobody knows why. Admiral Nagumo said, I fear we have awakened a sleeping giant. And surely he was right. Fast forward. September the 11th, 2001. There'd been plenty of warnings. The cabinet had heard the disquieting news of the chatter that indicated an attack was coming. But the intelligence service and the cabinet simply just couldn't bring themselves to believe that airliners would be used as cruise missiles. Three thousand people. 2,296 to be exact, and more than 6,000 wounded. 
shook a nation awake. There was a tendency in Sardis. There was a spirit in the city that caused it time and time again to fall asleep at its post. And somehow, that spirit in the city had pervaded the church. And the church was now taken up in this same sleeping identity. Could it be true of us? That somehow our sense of security and self-reliance, our sense, rightly so, of continuing success, lead us from time to time to fall into the same somnambulance that Sardis found itself in, sleepwalking towards disaster. Jesus said, wake up, wake up. Wake up or I will come to you like a thief. Stir yourself. So what of us, Apex? What of us as a church? Could that sleeping spirit have touched us in any way? Well, how many of us were awakened this week to the needs of the poor and the frail? It's interesting. When you read this passage, it says this in verse three. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Remember what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. Sally and I, as you know, we've been round to all of the house churches. Had a fantastic time. Been to all of the different communities of Dayton usually in the rain through the winter. I don't know how many places offered us pizza. <laughs> An awful lot of places. And to each one of them I said, is that gluten-free? Oh, okay. But it's interesting. Sally and I, we would sit in the truck after going to all of the house churches and we would almost always say this. I can't remember a time we didn't say it, so just assume we said it every single time because it was so often. Wow, what a great house church. We could join that one. But here's the thing. 
having heard the story of Apex, maybe 145, 146 times, we, we heard two things about the story of Apex that were very interesting. One was that the, the place was built on a desire to reach out to young people at college and in their late teens. But I never once heard that as a mission of the church. And although I heard that the church was built on a longing to see the lost saved, very rarely heard that message either. Is there a need to wake up? Is there a need to remember what we received and heard? Obey it and repent. And what is it to repent? The word metanoia means to change your mind, to have your inner life reoriented towards a different direction. And which different direction would that be? Has there been a fork in the road at any point? When our self-reliance as house churches and families on mission has become perhaps more self-serving than self-sacrificing on behalf of the young and the lost, which is where we started. Sally and I, as you know, we're both Americans now. And you could tell, obviously, by our accent that that's where we were born and raised. But we've, we've just fully identified. I mean, we, we are, you know, fully, we're... We're, that's it, that's what we are. And um, about four years ago, I, I realized that that was the case when I was driving my new truck <laughs> to, uh, to Charleston. And um, it was just at the end of a period when we uh, decentralized the movement that we had been responsible for founding, a movement of discipleship and mission called 3DM Movement. It's decentralized around the country and around the world. Various different continents around the world have expressions of the, of the movement. And it was quite a grueling experience. We'd gone through personal grief and family grief. And some of the people who we were working with, that kind of expert culture that had grown up in Paulie's Island, didn't really want us to do what it was that we sensed the Lord wanted us to do. And so it was quite a difficult time. And so I think both of us were very weary. I was coming back from Charleston. It, it had been raining for about two weeks. It was January. You get a bit of rain at that time of year in that part of South Carolina. And as I was driving on the 17, I noticed that the Central Reservation, which is a kind of little valley, a little V-shaped valley, was largely filled with water. It was just one long lake all the way from Charleston to Pawleys Island. And then I was suddenly 
overwhelmed by that water. The water came over the top of the truck and into the truck bed. And as I woke up at the wheel, I realized in a moment what had happened. I think the adrenaline started moving. Somehow I got the truck into four-wheel drive, kept it moving, and somehow got out of that lake onto the road where I stopped and was shaking. I'd fallen asleep at the wheel. Where do we need to wake up today? Where do you need to wake up today? Where do you need to wake up personally? Where does your family need to wake up? Where are the lost? Where are the young? Where are the disenfranchised and the marginalized? Where, where are they? Do you see them? If you don't see them, it's because your eyes are closed. If I don't see them, it's because my eyes are closed. And if my eyes are closed, it can only mean I'm dead or asleep. If we hadn't seen what we've seen this week on our television screens, would we have ever seen it? Were we asleep to that truth? Where are we asleep today? Jesus graciously challenges us and says, wake up. Now, as you know, today is Communion Sunday, and so we're going to move into a time of communion. And so here's my encouragement to you. This is my recommendation to you. As you take the elements of bread and wine, and over here we have the gluten-free option. As you take the bread and the wine this week, as you remember Jesus, allow Jesus to speak to you about what he also wants you to remember today. Remember what you have received and what you've heard and obey and repent. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread and after giving thanks, you gave it to your disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we thank you, Lord, that in the same way, after supper, you took the cup and after giving thanks, you gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us these symbols 
of your body and blood. The symbols of your undying love for us. And Lord, as we remember you and remember who you've made us to be today, Lord, remind us of what we received, what we have heard from you. And Lord, may this day you awaken our spirit to obey and to turn, Lord, to a new path where we need to. Fully awake, fully ready to receive all of your empowering to serve. Because Jesus, we prayed in your name. And all God's people say, Amen.